Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome along to the Slacktivist Action Group. We will be having an election on June the 8th. If nothing else, it has taken our mind off what Donald Trump is doing. And that is obviously a good thing, because it's worse. It is worse than we ever thought it could be, because largely he's doing exactly what he said he was going to do. The only exception appears to be Syria, where he's doing the exact opposite of what he said he was going to do, which has come as a complete shock to everybody, including Vladimir Putin, who's now regretting having hacked all those emails. <laughs> and of course, Trump's still having a go at his security agencies about this. And you're thinking, that's mad, isn't it? Having a go at your own security agencies. Six out of 44 US presidents have been shot. So there is a one in seven chance that he won't actually complete his time there. But of course, his vice president, Mike Pence, arguably worse than Trump. But you may notice that whenever Trump makes a speech, Mike Pence usually stands directly behind him. So there must be chance to get two for the price of one. But I myself, I love, I love a general election. It's a chance, isn't it, to stay up late into the night, get absolutely hammered, maybe play drinking bingo. Pick either a, you know, a word or phrase that you think is going to come up in the coverage and every time it's mentioned, have a little sip. If you want to get absolutely stonkered, maybe go for a constituency or MP. <laughs> maybe if you want to remain a little bit more sober, perhaps go for Jeremy Corbyn as entered Downing Street. <laughs> There's always a moment, isn't there? Whatever it might be, you may remember the 2005 general election. George Galloway spat with Jeremy Paxman, where Galloway ripped off his microphone, accusing Paxman of bad manners. And of course, we all know that George Galloway knows all about what good manners is. This is the man who defended Julian Assange, didn't he? He said, actually having sex with somebody when they're asleep, he said, it's not rape. He said, it is merely bad sexual etiquette. <laughs> so presumably having sex with dead people, that's not necrophilia. That is merely poor funeral protocol. <laughs> you may also remember the 2001 election. Peter Mandelson. I am not a quitter, I'm a fighter. Although he's never been actually known to be in a fight and he has quit three times. 
And in the end, obviously, it's every chance that government's a hard thing to do, isn't it? So we, we may well pick those people that we think are going to be able to get the job done the best. You know, it's like, if you think about it, we have incredible technology at the moment. We can send, can't we? We can send a small craft. We can send it after a comet, send it at 35,000 miles an hour, 500 million miles, and it can land on that moving target bang on time. And then in this country, we find ourselves on a bus moving at naught miles an hour because we're stuck in traffic, which has come as something of a shock to us because when we bought our ticket, we bought it to go on a train. <laughs> and there we heard three people applauding. That is known as the Slacktivist Standing Ovation. <laughs> With that, would you please welcome to the stage our three guests tonight, Nick Clegg MP, we also have from The Spectator, Katie Balls and Matt Ford. Just to get ourselves going, we like yeah. to uh, bond as a group. To begin with, um, we come up with a little confession, something in an ideal world that we would be less slack about. So, Matt, can you, can you offer something to the group for us? I'm now worried that this is going to sound really quite grave, but I wish I was less slack about my health. I'm 34, and sometimes I lie in bed and think, I feel so old. <laughs> like, I feel tired, like, down to a molecular level. Sometimes, uh, my, my, guess is, my guess is, though, that uh, people here, you know, quite a few of them will be older than 34. They're very happy for you to say that you're a mess. You're, you're making them well, feel not, better. Oh, all right, OK. <laughs> I'm, not total, I'm not falling apart at the seams, but like, I wish I sort of exercised a bit more and ate less. The problem is with food... Once you start eating, it, I find it so hard to stop. <laughs> and I wake up in the morning, it's the first thing on my mind, I think, right, what curry am I going to have today? It's not even should I have a curry or not. Like the, the, the question of what are you doing to your own body isn't, never enters my mind until the stage now. But like, <laughs> Do you find that if you go to an all-you-can-eat buffet that they, they start giving you a funny look after about half an hour or so? I remember once... I don't go to them anymore. Because that's the... <laughs> I, a mate of mine got barred from Big Walk in Nottingham. <laughs> Basically eating too much. But I remember being outside the all-you-can-eat Pizza Hut buffet in Edinburgh, and it was due to open at 11, and it hadn't opened, and I was sort of getting a bit testy. And I remember knocking on the window, and he said, five minutes. I said, you said five minutes 15 minutes ago. <laughs> and I remember thinking, this, this is no way to live. <laughs> and the following year, I ran a marathon to try and like, get it all out of my system. I was constantly trying to be healthy, but then... This Easter, that goes on for about a month. Chocolate everywhere. And the rest of the... In fact, just, just all year round for me, Easter. I was going to say, it's not supposed to go on for a month. That's Lent that's supposed <laughs> to go on. <laughs> I sort of did it the wrong way round. <laughs> yeah. I eat loads of chocolate, then give it up on Easter Sunday. <laughs> you eat cereal dry out of the box, don't you? I remember talking about that one. <laughs> You gave me a great encyclopedic sort of account of which cereals are best, just to sort of pour into your hand and... Oh, so soft. good, like cocoa pops. Cinnamon, no, cinnamon, <laughs> cinnamon, cinnamon grains, cinnamon, yeah, oh my it. God. Cinnamon grains, I remember you telling me. You, yeah. you are still living the life of a student, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. Can't be asked to go and I get went, milk. I tried them afterwards, actually. They're good, aren't they? <laughs> They're, <very good. laughs> They're so addictive. Has anyone here tried them? Oh, my God, a few yes. exhausted bodies in the back. <laughs> well, let's, let's move on to Katie. Katie, what, what would you like to offer the group in terms of something that you would like to be less slack about? Um, I think I'd like to be less slack at standing up. I, I have no balance, and I just fall over about three times a day, 
usually when there's like no obstacle it's a flat surface and usually like important something in front of someone important like my boss or a politician so, so you sat down at the moment so you're feeling reasonably good this you managed to good. walk onto the stage yeah. no problems <laughs> this is a safe space yeah <laughs> long may it remain that way um, Nick what about you what would you like to offer uh, what are we like well I suppose winning elections would have come in handy <laughs> <laughs> could, 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 have, could have come in handy a few years ago our answer of the day so far, I feel. <laughs> uh, so here's a slightly more serious answer, actually, as a politician. I do wish, and all with hindsight, of course. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of that going on. Um, uh, I do wish I had been less slack about answering back. Particularly the people like the Daily Mail and others. The crap they used to, the lies, and I never answer back. So I often think, if it ever happens again, which it won't, yeah. I, would, I, would, I, would, I would be less slack about answering back. Let's kick off with that. You obviously won. You have said that you're standing in the election coming up. You're, yes. Um, a lot of people aren't standing. Obviously, George Osborne has decided that uh, five jobs it yeah. is enough for him. Yeah. David Cameron obviously asked it all up and is spending time with his family. Ed Miliband is standing. Oh, is so that's yeah. possible because some members of his family may not want to spend time with him. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. But he, you, you have said... You have said that this is the last chapter politically for you, but as the spokesperson for Brexit, yes. um, Brexit could go on for a very long time. That could be a hell of a chapter. Could yeah, it no, yes, it could be a hell of a chapter and not a wholly happy one. I, no, I, I, to be honest, if I'm really honest with you, I didn't expect necessarily to fight another election. I did think it was sort of my own mind. I hadn't sort of fully decided, but I thought, you know, I thought the last election was probably going to be my last last one. I thought, oh, well, I've got a couple of years to, to make up my mind. Um, but then, you know, obviously, Theresa May sprung this surprise on us. And it just, uh, I don't know, it just doesn't feel, I don't know, it's just an instinctive thing, actually. It's not, I don't think about this too meticulously or logically. I just didn't feel right to kind of quit when we're having this ongoing debate about the future of the country. So, no, I, I mean, I don't, I don't sort of see my political future stretching infinitely into the distance, no. but uh, well, one, we, more, one more turn of the wheel, maybe. We had Ed Davey here, who is going to be standing again, mm. um, and he was here, we were talking about how, how you know, the Lib Dems could uh, regroup, if you like, mm. and he was saying that what they needed was a really big issue where you could have a distinctive policy. It, it basically, something had to go badly wrong, and then the Lib Dems could come in, and it would get you back in the game. Now, by all accounts, you are back in the game. Uh, but it must come with a tinge of sadness that you are back in the game with something that you feel is yeah. really bad for Britain. Yeah. You've, yes, basically. <laughs> no, no, yeah, of course I do. I mean, it, it, Brexit's changing, uh, changing politics, and it's, it's given uh, the Lib Dems, you know, obviously a party that suffered, like all smaller parties and coalitions do, with a kind of... It sort of blurs their identity in, in, in coalition. Now it's giving the Lib Dems tremendous sort of definition in, it kind of in, in our identity on Brexit. But I wish it wasn't for this reason. I have to say, I'd much rather my kids grow up in a country which is in the EU and it takes a little bit longer for the Lib Dems to recover. Because, I mean, I really do... I do just care about this issue, about whether we are an open or, or you know, whether we're a European country or not, infinitely more than I do about my, par my party politics. Because I think it's infinitely more important than any party well, you, politics. You've, you've said that it's about the future of this country. you said it's very much about young people. Mm. Now, obviously, for the Scottish referendum, 16 and 17-year-olds could vote. European referendum, they couldn't. In this country, 16 and 17-year-olds, they can fight for their country. Mm. They can get married. 
Um, but you can't vote until you're 18. And yeah. you think, you know, a vote is for a maximum of five years, e even if you keep to the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. Um, you know, marriage's supposed to be for life. Can I just say, because yeah. I was the author of that act. Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> so I do feel... No, no, it did rely on the idea that the party of opposition opposes. I mean, that was the idea. You know, the idea was that it was founded on a very old-fashioned, slightly uncontroversial idea that if a prime minister says, jump the party of opposition doesn't just immediately say how high. I mean, it's amazing the Labour Party didn't say, well, hang on a minute, no, we're not going to do it on June the 8th, or we're not going to do it exactly as you want, Theresa May. So that, to anyway, be fair, okay, though, rant over about I, I, I think it's a very reasonable rant. The only thing I would say was, from my memory, not too many of the Liberal Democrats uh, did vote. Uh, I think you voted well, to trigger the election. Well, I, I abstained, actually, as, as, but, as it happened, but, for that but, very reason. But, 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 yeah. but, but frankly, what, what we did in our rather small, cutely shaped numbers, um, <laughs> or not, was really neither here nor there once the Labour Party had said, yeah, we're going we're gonna to just do what Theresa May wants. So I'm just, anyway, never mind. Not at uh, all. But in terms of, you know, obviously... 16 and 17-year-olds. Uh, well, yes, obviously, a third of, a third of people on average don't bother to turn out yeah. to vote. A third of people do not, on average, not turn up to their own wedding. The excuses, <laughs> the excuses that people give that not to vote would never be acceptable for your own wedding. You know, it was pissing it down. They're only in it for themselves. I was worried, I was worried there was a queue. Would, <laughs> would not be acceptable. No. Um, so, my, my question to you is, when can we expect to see that... Uh, 16, 17-year-olds? Yeah, well, it, would it not be a great thing? Yes, of course it would, of course it would. And by the way, one of the reasons it didn't happen, because uh, we had a, 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 a sort of debate, debate about this, I mean, as we do in Westminster from time to time, and of course 16 and 17-year-olds should have the vote, and of course it was shown, as you said, in the Scottish referendum, that giving 16 and 17-year-olds the vote doesn't mean that sort of democracy grinds to a halt. But the reason that didn't happen is the same reason why... We didn't have a, a minimum threshold for the, uh, for, the, for the referendum, or we didn't have, which is, we, which is what we've had in referenda in this country in the past, and you have in most other mature democracies, that you can't suddenly make this massive constitutional change without clearing certain kind of you know, thresholds, either a turnout or the actual vote itself. The reason none of those things happened was that David Cameron was utterly convinced he was going to win. He thought it was just going to be a breeze. So there just was no, it wasn't taken seriously at all. Because I remember making the case for giving 16 and 17-year-olds the vote. I remember making the case to the government and the re at the time. And the reason they just didn't take it seriously when we were passing the legislation for the Brexit referendum was because they thought it was in the bag. So it was this kind of, it was this kind of odd combination of complacency and kind of indifference to the constitutional proprieties by which you make such a kind of screeching change in your country's future. And that's why other politicians in other democracies just can't get their head around it. They sort of say, what? You can just have a referendum just like that with sort of no, talk about slacking, with, with, no, <laughs> with, no, with no constitutional constraints we, at all. We need just to get because... David Cameron on the show to answer that yeah. question. Huh? Yeah. Perhaps not both of us at the same time. No. Yeah, yeah. Re reasonable. The, the, the Rose Garden or whatever seems a long, t long time away. But uh, it, you've done a very nice piece I saw for Newsnight recently. You went to Ebervale. Yeah. Um, and you had some chat with some people there, a very Brexit area. Mm. Your conclusion was that a lot of them had voted against Brexit on immigration grounds, mm. but Ebervale itself has got very little immigration. So you sort of... They weren't voting for themselves. They were, you know, you could argue they weren't being narrow-minded. They were merely being very altruistic for other areas. 
It's not quite the way I put it, but... No, uh, yeah. no. How did you put it? That's what I was really asking. No, well, listen, we were actually talking about it just earlier, just behind stage. The, the, the fascinating thing, if you look at the way in which people voted in the referendum and the reasons they cited for it, other than in some slightly atypical areas like Lincolnshire and the kind of vegetable fruit-picking areas of eastern England, where there have been huge changes uh, brought about by EU immigration, particularly from the Baltic states, actually the pattern that you see in many other parts of the country is that in areas like London, where you have very high levels of immigration, you actually had people voting uh, for Remain. And in other parts of the country, I mean, Redcar is a classic example. I think 66% of people voted to leave, and the overwhelming reason they gave was immigration. And yet I think the percentage of the local population in Redcar uh, that is that wasn't born in this country is about two percent. So you've got this very weird. You've got this very. But I mean, it's a very, it's, imp, it's a point to take very very seriously, which is the point I was trying to grapple with when I went with, with um, the Newsnight team to Ebervale. You have to take people's perception, even though it might not concur with reality, very very seriously. And there's this incredibly powerful feeling about immigration, which may bear no relation to the lived experience. I, I'll give you one little anecdote. No, just no, to, I, 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 I totally agree yeah. with your analysis. I'm just curious as to how you combat that. I don't know. I don't know. I think you have to... Well, firstly, there's a huge generational difference. So in Ebervale, you saw that, Matt. So the young people I spoke to just looked at the world completely and utterly different. So there's a big, big generational thing at play here. But secondly, I just wonder whether... whether where can I put it? Mainstream politicians and, and the media, maybe, and others. Maybe, we've, maybe we haven't been um, trenchant enough in sort of... Some, in, when, when something is clearly not the case, just saying it's clearly not the case, I think sometimes we've kind of allowed um, a kind of depiction of, 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 of things to take root, even though they bear no relation to reality. I mean, years and years ago, I remember uh, participating in an election in Chesterfield, and, and it was a nice sort of spring evening, and I remember my, my sort of yellow rosettes fluttering in my, sort of, in my lapel, and I went up to this chap who was, it sounds apocryphal, but it was true, he, he was leaning on his white picket fence, and he just mowed his beautifully immaculate lawn in front of his uh, house um, in Chesterfield, and I went up to him and I said, hello, will you vote for the Lib Dems and so on and so forth. And it was the time, that's right, when there was a great deal of controversy about the Tony Blair government moving asylum seekers from the Kent ports to other parts of the country. And there was great tabloid furore every day about people being moved into areas which couldn't support them. And he said to me, no, I'm not going to vote for the Lib Dems. I said, why not? He said, because of all of these asylum seekers. And I knew as a fact there wasn't a single asylum seeker in Chesterfield. Not a single one. And then he said something which has remained with me ever since. And, it's a, and it presents a conundrum to which I don't have a perfect answer. Because I said, oh, that's interesting. If you met them in the GP surgery, in the supermarket, in the post office. And he said, no, I haven't seen any of them, but I know they're everywhere. <laughs> and, and it's like, well, you know, and you go... They're spying on me. Yeah, no, no, but I mean, it's, it's just like, you know, you, you, you can't... Certainly as a democratic politician, you must never denigrate people's feelings and people's perception. But it's really, really difficult in politics if you're dealing with a perception that you just don't think, you know... Bears relation this, to this the. This fits to in with your, you know, something you would like to be less slack about is w when you feel something, you you go yeah. ahead and you know. I think you, I'm you like sand a, them out. I think I'm like a lot of people in politics, and it's a shame that it seems to be like this that you that you realise often towards the sort of latter stages of your political career, if you've been sort of up and down, as I certainly have, um, that you, you, you realise actually the virtue of just being more blunt and candid and not sort of faffing about when you're trying to deal with complex things. And I, and I think I'm like a lot of politicians. It's often, it's, it's a pity that actually we often get to a sort of degree of kind of candour 
that, that, that may be. Because, you know, it's a very sensitive issue. So you tiptoe around it. I, and then you're constantly told, you've got to take it seriously, you've got to take it seriously. Take it seriously. And, and which is, as you should, of course, when something like immigration has gripped the public imagination as much as it has. But I sometimes think that we've allowed take it seriously to mutate into don't challenge it. When, when things are being I, said I that are clearly not that right. You, you described uh, Labour had voted um, to trigger Article 50 because they didn't want to go against the will of the people, and you described it as 24-carat crap. Yeah. And <laughs> that was the sort of thing I would love to have heard you say yeah. when you were Deputy Prime yeah, Minister. Well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. So I was, I was too much of a slacker when it comes yeah. to calling things 24-carat crap. So, Katie, you, you've been writing uh, in The Spectator talking about the Commons Brexit Select Committee and uh, what had been going on there, that they were crossed with Theresa May because there was no proof about this idea that no deal was better than a bad deal. The Brexit MPs obviously didn't think that was a problem. No. And then the Remain MPs did think it was a problem. But but this idea if we fall out and we have to rely on WTO rules, that's going to require negotiation. We have 163 countries then that could cause us problems as opposed to 27. It, it, it It could be that actually no deal turns out to be a very bad deal and therefore a bad deal could turn out to be quite a good deal. (laughs) (laughs) And I can't even. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, no deal, obviously they're saying we don't know what it could be and everyone's been like, well, can't you do a treasury forecast to let us have some idea of what a no deal would look like on WTO terms? But the thing is, some of the defence used, especially by Brexit supporting MPs, is if you looked at George Osborne's Treasury warnings, I mean, right now it would be in a recession um, if they had come true, and they're not. So with these warnings, you kind of get in what you, you get out what you put in. in so it's quite hard to in work true, it but out. He, uh, as, as I understand it, uh, the, the pound is still something like 15% down, is it? And the Treasury warnings for the future, uh, Philip Hammond has, has kept exactly as they are, and that it's something like losing 66 billion a year from 2020 or something like that? And we haven't left yet. (laughs) This is the preamble. So, I mean, you know, there is a lot of talk that the the Treasury warnings haven't come as bad as that, but some of them have come bad, and the ones in the future they're sticking with because they think they're right. Oh, sure, exactly, but I think the majority, lots of them haven't, and the problem is those are ones that were happening before we left. I think, obviously, there's so many risks involved with Brexit. I mean, but... I don't know how they're going to do this forecast. Can you think of a way, Nick, that they can work out what a no deal is? Is there any deal you can imagine that would be better than what was Britain's membership of the EU? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course not. Not economic. No, of course not. No, because no, any, any version of exit, even the sort of softest Norwegian style, is still less trade than we have at the moment. Yeah. So if you believe that trade is good for your economy, which I basically do, I mean, if you don't, that's a different matter, but if you basically think the more you can trade, the better, then less trade is going to make us yeah. poorer. But I think the problem is, because we have voted for Brexit, yes. it's what people think see as a better deal is actually probably sacrificing slightly economically, oh, right. and in return, getting other things that people voted for, such as controlled courts, and also um, control on immigration. Or sure. Maybe there. the secret is, is that actually what we need to do is, is a bit like immigration. If only we can get people to perceive that they're richer, when in fact, we're not richer at all... <laughs> That, that is the secret to it, obviously. Matt, let me uh, just bring you in. Uh, congratulations on Unspun. Uh, two series on Dave. If nobody's watched it, you can get it on Catch Up Dave or whatever. <laughs> Don't you fucking laugh at that. <laughs> 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 it sounds like a lot of people haven't watched it. Um, 
thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, but, but no, gen genuinely, love it and, and congratulations. And oh, you've thank had, you. had some great guests. I believe in your first series, you, you had a Mr. Nick Clegg. Yeah. Uh, yeah. On, uh, That's when we talked about cereal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we had a really good chat about the fact that you gorged on Cheerios. <laughs> <laughs> Deputy Prime Minister. It's been great fun. I mean, I've been obsessed with politics my whole life and I used to work in it. To get the chance to make a telly show about it and much, you know, a comedy show about it as well is, is, is a treat. How did you find Nick? Was he, you know, obsessed with Brexit? Well, I think it was pre-Brexit, wasn't it? Was yeah, it, it was pre-Brexit, yeah. We got on very well, I thought. Yeah. In fact, we had two nights together. Oh, lovely. Because, um... <laughs> it's, sound, well, not the, sound, <laughs> sounds, sounds like a William Hague moment for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, it wasn't a William Hague. <laughs> That's in June. <laughs> you know, just on a tangent, what I find remarkable about William Hague is that his voice goes all over the place, but his face stays so rigid that he will be high like that and then very low, but his face won't move at all. <laughs> Almost as if he's trying to be a ventriloquist. <laughs> And rehearsing it in Parliament. <laughs> very odd sort of Richard's very... But um, we had a lovely... We did two... Um, Nick was very kind and came on and spun in a, a podcast that I do, The Political Party. And um, we talked about cigarettes and um, Cheerios. Mm. The big issues of the day, I think. Excellent. Well, talk, talk of which... Uh... The, um, you obviously you're, you you can speak five languages, Nick. You're a, you know an ardent European. Um, I noticed that you uh, your children have got Spanish names: yes. Alberto, Antonio, and Miguel. If yeah. I remember, so that. I won the battle about the names. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Yeah. Well, there was I standing up for Edward and James well, and other Anglo-Saxon names. The yeah. quote that I saw was that your your wife said she was going to give the kids uh, <laughs> Spanish first names mm. if they were going to have Clegg as a surname. No, she said, yes, she said they need nice sort of flowing Mediterranean names because of this stubby little monosyllabic... And I'd wondered if you'd thinking of switching it at all and gone with the, the, the surname, you know, Gonzalez Durantes, yes. but then just calling them Kevin. Yeah. Or... <laughs> Jack. Bob. Yeah. Bob Gonzalez Durantes. Yeah. I'll suggest that this evening. <laughs> Obviously, the reason that the election has been called mm. is that you're getting some blame now, uh, supposedly, according to Theresa May, that you have been uh, mm. holding the Brexit thwarting. process. Yeah, to ransom. Lots of thwarting yes. the will of the people. Um, Frustrating. Well, she mm. says that she doesn't like playing political games, but her actually saying that she doesn't like playing political games, that in itself appears to be a political game. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, of course it is. No, no, I mean, I, I, I heaven knows how she did it with a, a straight face. Uh, <laughs> on, the, on the steps of number 10. So when, she'd, when she'd got everything she wanted in, in Parliament, when the Labour Party basically wrote a complete blank cheque to her and said, yeah, you're fine, yeah, Article 50, whenever you want. They got almost nothing in back in return. We still don't know what Brexit looks like. I mean, but Parliament has been pathetic. It's been a supine wimp of a place when it comes to Brexit. And so for her, to, with a straight face, to claim that she's somehow been frustrated from delivering the instructions of the people is, of course, just a, a confection to, uh, to hide, hide what was a brazen, if entirely predictable, political calculation, which is to exploit the... the, the, the well, well, it's two things, actually. To exploit the weakness of, of Jeremy Corbyn in terms of his standing in the country, but secondly, to get her excuses, or to get her election, rather, in early, before the bad news materialises. Well, especially she, she told Nicola Sturgeon that she needed, you know, stable yeah. time and, and all that. It's not the time, apparently. Not the time to have a referendum, but it is the time to have a... Yeah. <laughs> well, that election different. Yeah. And, and you, you obviously... Uh, 
you know, were squeezed in the general election with the Conservatives, you know, worrying about the SNP. Mm. And, but now, with this, you know, the second Scottish referendum, it, it's going to be very tough, isn't it? If you've slagged off Scotland going, these people are so terrible that we'll, we'll never want them anywhere near government, they're a right risk. And then to go, oh, no, we love you so much, we really like to remain yeah. in a union. I mean, they're a fairly psychotic wooer, the Conservative <laughs> Party, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, you know, but, no, but you're right. It was incredibly effective. I, mean, I saw it myself. It was incredibly effective in the last couple of weeks of the general election in 2015. Uh, you know, going around to voters saying, you know, whatever you think of the Conservatives and so on and so forth, the worst thing is to have Ed Miliband dancing to the tune of Alex Salmon. Remember all those posters they had with Ed Miliband in, in Alex Salmon's breast pocket? And that worked incredibly. I mean, I, I respect to countless voters at all, well, you know, on this occasion we better play it safe. What I find so interesting is that they've got these incredibly well-paid political consultants, the Linton, well, he's even got a knighthood for his, his labour. He's now. back, so, isn't he? He's back. Linton Closby, yeah. And what they decide to do then is do exactly the same thing, as if the world hasn't changed. It's just changed utterly. I don't think anyone remotely thinks that Jeremy Corbyn is going to be in number 10. So they've pinned all of their all of their kind of colours to a strategy of saying either, either not, you know, stable, strong uh, Theresa May or this coalition of, of chaos, when I don't think the latter threat is a credible one. I mean, if anything, the, 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 I, and I think, think what you'll see in the next six or seven weeks is it'll change from that argument into an argument about quite how big will the Conservative majority be and quite how comfortable is the country with the idea that basically the Conservative Party wants a mandate where they can do, in effect, what they like for the next half a decade. So I think it'll be about... It'll be not about who's in number 10 or who isn't, but it's kind of who will be in... You know, how... How much freedom is there going to be given to Theresa May to kind of do what she wants? I'd love to find out how many people went up to Alex Salmon during the election and looked in his pocket to see, <laughs> see if they could find Ed Miliband. Ed Miliband, he was on um, Andrew Marr's show and Eddie Mayer asked him if he cried after the, the election. And it seemed a very harsh question to be asking him. And his answer was that he, he couldn't remember crying. If I'd have been him, I'd have said, yes, I cried. I cried absolute buckets. It means absolutely masses to me. Thanks for reminding me, Eddie. When it, the election happened, generally, people would have been expecting those sort of politicians to cry just because, you know, I was virtually in tears for you, Nick. You know, I'll be, I'll be absolutely honest. I know it gets very emotional late on in the day, on, on election day. You know, and then you've had no sleep. You have to turn up to the cenotaph. What's such a long preamble to the question, did you cry? No, no, no. <laughs> it's, I wasn't even going to ask it. <laughs> no, it, it, to be honest, I was trying to get to the cenotaph. So I could oh, say, yes, the cenotaph, yeah, yeah. Well, no, just you know, having to meet David Smuggy McSmugpants yeah. at the cenotaph, having had no sleep. And particularly calling for, for Ed Miliband, there he is in front of the cenotaph, a memorial stone. He'd seen enough of <laughs> memorial stones over the course no, of the it election. Was, it was excruciatingly British, you're quite right. I'm not sure if anyone remember this, so, so that's right. Very very surprised, shock victory for Cameron. I then went and, yes, very sleeplessly and slightly bleary-eyed, announced my resignation and sort of Ed Miliband's dreams of moving to number 10 were shattered. And then we were invited to the Foreign Office to have coffee and tea and cakes before being marched out in an act of exquisite national humiliation <laughs> to, stand, to stand next to our nemesis, David Cameron, who's grinning from ear to ear in front of the nation's press. And guess what? In true British style, no one mentioned the election. It was like, it was like you're sitting there sort of stirring your tea. It's nice weather today. Isn't it? Do you like some lemon drizzle cake? For heaven's sake, I've just had my whole political dream shattered and you're giving me lemon drizzle cake. It was, like, it was so British. It was just a It just wouldn't happen in another country, I don't think. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Katie, you've been doing some analysis in The Spectator about the Lib Dems, where they might be after the general election. Some suggestions that uh, 27 Lib Dem seats were lost to Conservatives in 2015 that they might well get back. If you'd been in charge with a party that had quite a lot of seats, then had less seats, but were now looking like you might gain quite a lot of them back, you'd be feeling quite good about yourself, do you think, Katie? Yeah, I think the Lib Dems probably actually have the most to gain in this election because I think Nick's touched on this, but the problem for the Tories is there's so much pressure, particularly because of how feeble Corbyn is perceived to be, for them to get an absolute landslide majority. And it's going to be compared against Thatcher and Blair landslides. And it means if it is just a 50 MP majority, that sounds like a lot, but everyone's going to, is that all against him? Mm. <laughs> but, um, yeah. No, no, no. <coughs> but I would say, <laughs> It was just a, it was a balance issue. She was just yeah. leaning towards you. Yeah, exactly. That's all it was. Um, but then one thing, obviously we had the Edstone in 2015, but Liv Dem was going to have a good campaign, whatever, but Nick, what happened to the video you made? Carly Rae Jepsen, Call mm. Me Maybe, you filmed it in 2015, mm, mm. it's locked up in a safe, I'm mm, told. Mm. Can we get it out for this election? No. <laughs> No, that, that's how you clinch majority. Yeah, he's, he's talking about the final political chapter. He, he doesn't want the, what is it, the epilogue or whatever. whatever. But, but uh, a lot of uh, the candidates seem to be having a go at the mainstream media now. You are obviously yeah, part the, of the mainstream. The MSM. Yes, the MSM. You're part of the Spectator, owned by the Barclay Brothers. The recluses, yeah. the tax exiles, got their own channel island. Uh, my lovely proprietors. Yes, yeah, it. Well, I found out they, they used to be estate agents, and how you can be recluses and estate agents is it's a tricky combination. <laughs> you know, I'll post you the keys, and then, then you show yourself, Rand. Like, <laughs> but how, how do you find the state of the mainstream media at the moment? Well, I think I'm a bit biased on yeah. the MSM, probably. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we're all right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're quite as biased as everyone makes out, but there's obviously things like... I mean, I think every paper has a slight bias of its own, but the whole thing is you know what that bias is. If you read The Guardian, you know it's a bit left-wing. If you read The Daily Mail, you know it's a bit right-wing. And you can kind of pick it that way. Maybe bits, like, yeah, <laughs> in that sense. Whereas I think with lots... And we've seen all these sites, um, like The Canary which is the pro-Corbyn website, and Navarra Media. And these are apparently, like, anti-MSM, but they're often the ones that get all their facts wrong. And obviously Farage has been having a go at the mainstream media. Um, obviously various revelations recently. They were, you know, his wife has revealed that they apparently have been leading separate lives uh, for some time, possibly not come as a shock to the mainstream media. He would presumably come home and say that, you know, she's German, isn't she? So you'd come home and say, oh, I love you, and then go off to the, the TV studios and say, people like you should fuck off back to Europe or whatever. Yeah, there was a great, um, I think it was like just three days after the EU referendum result, and it was, someone was in the German embassy, and Nigel Farage was in the queue. <laughs> and all these people are queuing because they're like, we need to, um, you know, we've got to make sure I can actually stay in this country. And I was like, what's he doing? Was he? Yeah, he was, he was in the queue. There was a photo. Um, they got very annoyed about it, but I did know maybe at some point we'll see the German with his wife 
No, he was by himself. It was what you don't want to see when you just, you're German, you just voted. But he, he, he has said that he's not going to stand. He could have had an easy win in Clacton, he said. But he wants, he, it's much better, he says, to, uh, to be turning up and uh, get much more focus on the European Parliament. Given, though, that his, his record at turning up to the European Parliament is the worst of any MP in, in Europe, any, any MP in Europe, apart from those that are currently hospitalised. <laughs> Which was a UKIP MEP. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mike Cookham. Um, yeah, I think with UKIP, though, we've seen, actually, even Paul Nuttall today, he, so we had the UKIP um, press conference today. It was the first of, since, you know, we've had a snap election called. Um, they told us how they wanted to ban burkas, and then someone asked Paul Nuttall if he was going to stand for a seat, um, as you think you might do if you were a leader of a political party. And he ummed and aired, looked a bit awkward, and then barricaded himself in a room <laughs> as Pendens knocked on it and then got a getaway car leaving. Um, which doesn't really instill confidence that you could think they can win seats. But isn't, there, isn't Aaron Banks standing in Clacton? No, he's out now. He, he, also, he said he was 1%, one million percent going for it. And then about... Having, having never been there and called yeah. politicians yeah. carpetbaggers. And having, having said he knows nothing about Clacton. <laughs> um, so he's, he's not standing? Yeah, 5pm today, he said that he's thought about it. He's not standing anymore. Mm. So I... I can't you really think of any UK politicians so who are So brave, these people. Two easy wins. We, we did have um, Mr Blair entering the fray again this weekend. I mean, Matt is a big, big fan of Tony Blair. He's interviewed him a couple of times. The thing is, Brexiteers, whenever Tony Blair enters anything saying about second referendums or anything like that, the Brexiteers are all loving it because they talk about Britain being divided at the moment, but they seem fairly united. They don't want Tony Blair to come and talk about what's going on. It's a bit like when Remainers here... Norman Lamont talking about Brexit and what a good idea it is because of the long-term economic benefits. And everybody goes, well, what the hell do you know about long-term economic <laughs> benefits? But what, what do you make of his interventions? Well, as someone who voted Remain, I'm very grateful for them. Um, and I think in politics anyway, people just have to get used to disagreeing with people and to some extent dealing with it. His legacy has become Iraq and actually did a lot of good, as a lot of politicians do, even for parties that I don't vote for. What makes me laugh about Blair is when he comes out, I think even his harshest critics would admit that he's talented. He's a really good communicator. So you see him give a speech now and say, look, of course now, if you're in a situation where you've bought a house and you haven't seen the new one, then of course the British people should be given uh, a choice. And by the way, who made up the rule that you can't have a second referendum and all that sort of thing? People go, oh, he's really good. You go, yeah. <laughs> the issue was never that he was shit. No one ever said, fuck, he can't string a sentence together. <laughs> He's a fucking idiot. He keeps tripping <coughs> over his feet. You know, people had a really big moral problem with a particular decision, and it still really hurts a lot of people to even watch him on the telly or listen to him. The guy was Prime Minister for three terms, for ten years. He's exceptionally talented, and I think even his harshest critics would accept that if he's on the side of something, it makes it more likely that he'll, he'll get his way. And that, and that he's Every politician still has a role to play. This idea that, you know, I've heard Owen Jones say, and I get on with Owen, but, you know, Tony Blair has no right to an opinion. And this is the way that a lot of people feel. Everyone has a right to opinion, regardless of who we are. And I would say if any, if any group of people have more of a right, it's people who've actually led a country and know what that entails. So I feel... Um, but is, somewhat... he, is he helping the cause? He's giving some money to... Yes, it. he is. Yeah, he's absolutely helping the cause. Because I think part of the problem with, with the fact that it's cross-party and, and that people are people really hurting after that referendum on, mm -hmm. uh, across is that you do need sometimes talismanic figures. 
as you do in sport, you do need figureheads that say, right, I'm going to make this my personal mission now to rally the troops on Remain, whatever that means. I think actually people would feel, I think Tony Blair actually has probably inspired a lot of people that didn't like him very much until now. Right. That, well, I mean, you say he achieved a lot and, you know, we can go through, you know, whether it's the minimum wage or reducing waiting lists or, or whatever, the, the yeah. new Labour achievements. But as you rightly say, everybody now associates him with Iraq. You, you almost feel with Blair there is still a lot of antipathy to him that even if he sort of gave every single pound that he'd ever earned to charity, if he baked everybody a cake, if he discovered a cure for cancer, yeah. there would still be a lot of people just shouting war criminal at him. Yeah, there was, yeah. <laughs> there was. And that's a shame because I think, I totally understand why people disagree with the Iraq war. I also think people need to have a more balanced view about the cost of inaction, and I think we're seeing that in Syria. Um, mm. That actually not doing stuff is a decision that does cost people their lives, and that is a serious consequence of taking the moral high ground. I also think that people do have to be just more philosophical about their politicians in general. That people are elected to lead and take decisions. Parliament had a vote on it which was the first time any war had ever been given a, a vote in Parliament, that actually it's perfectly fine to disagree with someone without hating everything about them and, and becoming... Because actually, if you're the sort of person that does hate... And obviously we're all, a lot of us on the left are going through this with Donald Trump, is that this guy just feels totally repulsive. But anger is exhausting, and it's not good for you. And in the end, you have to make your peace with people, and that includes politicians. And I think we all just have to be a bit more philosophical that politicians will let us down, they will break promises. They will do things that we would say, if we were in that position, we would never do it. This is just life. And actually, you have to just have... I'm not talking about blind faith or forgiveness for no reason, but just at least try and understand what it's like to be in the middle of a decision like that, acting with the best of intentions. And I think what I really struggle with, with a lot of the stuff is, people sort of presume that there was almost a sort of devilish delight mm. in going to war with Iraq, which... I just can't agree with. You know, I've, we all have our issues with the intelligence and, and the, some of the things that were said, but to, to sort of presume that someone actually enjoyed doing that, I wouldn't level that at, at many people alive. Well, he, he is obviously trying to rectify some things. He's put his own money behind this Institute for Global Change. That's right, yeah. I mean, it, it's... Uh, it sounds like a sort of charity that you give money to at the end of a long-haul flight. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, I was thinking. If you've got any global change, put it in the bag, and you know it will help. Well, I, I thought it was, it was it was more like it doesn't lack ambition as a title, does it? The Institute for Global Change. <laughs> yeah. It was more like a front organisation for Blofeld or something like that. <laughs> um, who is probably more popular than Blair in certain parts of uh, Britain. But you you were a Labour Party member for many years. Yeah, you, worked for the party. Um, as I understand it, resigned your membership uh, when, when Corbyn got in. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> a, a lady's, I'm not sure whether she's excited that you've left or... Fuck her. Lynn McCluskey is back, or he's made it as United, he's there. On, on, I saw a 12% turnout. You know, if yeah. he, that is an embarrassing turnout for a union, isn't it? It would be like, imagine you'd had a party and only 12% turned up. You, you'd be in therapy after that, wouldn't you? I'd be delighted, personally, but um, <laughs> you're obviously more, more popular More than booze I. and food for me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is... Len role in the Labour Party is deeply unhealthy, I think. And uh, uh, part of the problem... The, the, the core of this really is about party funding, because... Until you have, if we ever do have state funding of political parties, Labour is always going to be reliant on the cash of unions. And I think a lot of people who haven't been involved in the Labour Party don't realise that it's not just a donation. 
the unions have constitutional power in the Labour Party. They have affiliate branches of local constituencies, which means that they can effectively buy elections. Now, if the Tory party had that sort of relationship with the corporate world or with charities, people say, this is insipid, it is bizarre. And yet, the unions have this sort of... They are, they are welded into the DNA of the party. Now, a lot of people say that's good and it gives Labour a connection with working people. Other people say, actually, it deeply distorts Labour's focus and Labour should be a one-nation party that looks out for all interests. Yes, of course, it came out of the workers' rights movement and that will always be in you know, the heart of the Labour Party. But to give the unions such strong constitutional power really hampers the Labour Party. And you've seen it at the moment. The Labour Party is, and spoiler alert, if you listen to this after the 8th of June, probably going to lose the general election. <laughs> And the, the unions are helping that happen. They are, they are actively facilitating the death of the party that they claim to love the most. Now, that is a perverse relationship that needs rebalancing. And, of course, when Tony Blair tried to do it by getting money from elsewhere to, to sort of just financially reduce the, the clout of the unions, obviously, that, that well, the, the police got involved. So it wasn't... You know, that, <laughs> so that's tricky as well, but... Uh, it, it, when I, when I resigned the Labour Party membership, by the way, it, it, I, I was sad about it because I joined the Labour Party when I was 15, which is, I tried to join when I was 13, but I was too young. I was a sad bastard of a, of a kid. And I'd worked for it. I'd spent most of my life in the Labour Party. And I, I struggled under Miliband a bit. And under Corbyn, I just thought, that this, this isn't for me anymore. And people always say, oh, you tore up your membership card. I don't know if anyone's tried to tear plastic. <laughs> Anyone who claims that they ripped up their membership card is lying because, not that I tried it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just have to snip it in half. <laughs> if I, I never tore it up. I've kept it as a sort of memento of a, of a time in my life. Um, I always think about this, is that I know that I'm sort of centre-left, um, but, you know, more to the centre than to the left, maybe. But I worked for the Labour Party. <laughs> there was a fucking... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I, in this election, aren't sure that I can vote Labour, and I used to work for them, who... Now, I understand there's a lot of left-wing people in the country they are going to vote for them. But when I think of, like, swing voters, which is where these, this election decided, if I used to be paid by these people and I won't vote for them, who the fuck is? <laughs> and I just think, well, I don't know where Kate, all these votes are going to come from. Katie, Katie you listened to, uh, to Corbyn's speech. You described it as uh, trump light in terms of its uh, amount of, of populism. Um, the polls obviously looking very dire for Jeremy Corbyn at the moment, but polls, on the whole, tend to overstate how well Labour are going to do. So this idea that he's currently going to lose by a landslide, that, that could be overstating his popularity. It, it, it could be two landslides and an avalanche. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, and on Sunday, I think the Mail on Sunday's big story was um, disappointment and trouble for the Tories as they fall to 40% lead. <laughs> like, this is a weird election. <laughs> like, the Tories are doing awfully. They're going to get the, you know, something David Cameron could only ever have dreamed of. Um, what, that's what? how low the bar is. And I, I think when Corbyn gave that speech, he used the term rigged system about three or four times, which is... Uh, phrase Trump repeatedly used against um, Hillary. And I think it's part just trying to be like, I'm the outsider and hoping they'll get that wave of populism. Well, you were talking, Nick, about how you, you, you were expecting to have a, an opposition, hence the, the fixed-term Parliament Act or whatever. A shocking statistic is that Theresa May is supposedly more popular with Labour voters yeah. than Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. So if only traditional Labour voters voted in the election, yeah. Theresa May would still be the Prime Minister. Yeah, yeah. Jeremy Corbyn, he needs to go back to his allotment and prepare for harvest. Yeah. He? 
No, but it, it, it's, it's true, but, but, but uh, Matt will know this better than I do, and, and other people who are sort of activists in the Labour Party. I mean, I, I can see it, I see it obviously through the prism of where I've been an MP for the last 12 years in Sheffield, which is a sort of classic northern Labour city, which has mm. been, and lots and lots of traditional, what they call themselves, working-class Labour supporters in a place like Sheffield just don't relate to Jeremy Corbyn at all. They don't relate to the kind of... You know, they, they, it feels very much like from the south, not from the north, very London, very kind of broadsheet, not tabloid. It feels the preoccupations about Cuba and Venezuelan democracy, important though those are, and Wendy's allotment, and they, just, <laughs> they, they just don't touch people. So, so there it does seem to be this, it's not even political, it's a sort of cultural collapse in the relationship between... By the way, by the way there, there are some quite eerie parallels between what's happening to the Labour Party now and what happened to the Liberal Party yeah. in the early part of the last... Century. I mean, you, there are the telltale signs of when parties just, you know, enter into structural decline. It's, and it's actually not very much to do with the personalities involved. It's to do with quite big social reasons that mean that the leadership and the activists are just, in a, are just occupy a different planet culturally and ideologically to the people they've traditionally served. And that was the case in the Liberal Party in the early part. And you know, look how it's taken us to try and uh, <laughs> sort of, uh, you know, get back, get back to square one, so to speak. So, you know, I, I, do, I do think this looks like it has all the hallmarks. And it's not just here in this country. Social Democratic parties across Europe seem to be entering into this, you know, this sort of cyclical uh, decline. Um, and it, you know, it, it begs very big questions. Well, whilst the coalition of chaos, uh, so the Sir Linton Crosby allegation, I think, is not true. I do think it. I do think it's true to say that I can't really, right now, imagine any circumstances in which any one party in British politics can ever win power off the Tories again. And it's quite, a, it's quite a sort of profound thought that, that actually the kind of pendulum of our democracy, which relies on people in power constantly looking over their shoulder, worried that someone else is going to take it away from them, has just got stuck. It's just got stuck in the kind of blue corner, not, not necessarily through conspiracy. There's a bunch of reasons, the electoral system, what's happening in Scotland and so on. But, but it, it, does mean, it does seem to me that in the longer run, there is no alternative but politicians of different parties you say in the centre-centre-left you know, working together. Labour were never going to get back in, and then they, they did. The Conservatives were never going to get back in, right, and then they yeah. did. We, we will see. We will go to questions. We're running out of time now. We'll go to questions very shortly. Just before I do that, whilst people are having a little think, um, let me just tell you what's coming up for the Slacktivist Action Group. So next month, we have Romish Ranganathan here, we have Lucy Powell MP, and we have Daniel Finkelstein from The Times. In June, we have Peter Hayne, Baron Hayne, is it, I think? Oh, I love him. Yeah, he's here. And we've got uh, Catherine Bennett from The Observer. And then in July, we've got Clive Lewis MP, and we've got Miranda Sawyer. So uh, please um, come along to that. It's the last Monday of the month. And for anybody who's listening on the podcast, if you want to get in touch at all, andyparsons.co.uk. So, time for questions. And we're going to have to keep them short, please, because we've only got a little bit of time. If... If, as predicted, the Labour Party gets absolutely annihilated and their nose kind of rubbed in the dirt, do you think that Jeremy Corbyn will, will quit? Or do you think he'll say, this just proves that everyone else is wrong? We, we, were, just, um, we were just having this debate yeah. um, backstage, and uh, Matt said something, and he said, oh, don't, don't talk about that when we go up on stage. I won't say, <laughs> I won't say it quite the same as if, I, if, if everybody's listening. But, Matt, would you like to paraphrase what you... <laughs> <laughs> So I think some of the rhymes are cunt. Um, <laughs> um, I think I think there's a strong possibility that Corbyn will stay, because what? Oh. <laughs> if he keeps lady at the front he, is like an echo of your, uh, keeps your his, worst nightmare. No, not my internal monologue. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Um, I think he'll stay. Part of the reason he has to stay 
is because if he goes, there'll be a new leadership election and the PLP won't nominate a hard left candidate again. Now, you need 20% of the PLP to get on the, on the shortlist. Is it, is it 20 or is it 15? I think it's 15%. Yeah, it should, right. should be 20. Um, <laughs> it should be 50%, actually. It's 15%. But what John McDonnell wants to do at the conference in September is reduce the threshold to 5% so that any hard left candidate would effectively be automatically shortlisted and then the mechanism goes to the, to the membership. So he needs to stay, really, until October in order to keep a hard left candidate in charge of the Labour Party so that then... That can't be circumnavigated. And I think any other party leader, after having 92% of his parliamentary party say that they explicitly had no confidence in him and have an almost entire shadow cabinet resign, would have gone by now. So he's kind of got form. <laughs> so I think, I think there's a strong possibility he'd stay till about October time to, okay. to sort of secure the project, to consolidate the revolution. There we go. Which he's lost. So we, we've, um, I can see a hand at the back there. Um, yeah, don't you think all this um, prevaricating over um, Tony Blair being involved, it's, it's kind of like smokescreen for the real issue, which is that uh, the real left has disappeared and the right-wing parties and media have a stranglehold on public opinion and maybe we should just get behind whoever's in charge of the party and, and therefore that might give the left, in whatever form it is, some chance of destroying these fuck-witted, wanker-twapped people who are in power at the moment. That, that, you know, to be honest, that's one of, one of the more heartfelt uh, questions we've had. You can't just simply get behind someone that you completely disagree with. And actually, the public don't see it as left and right. This, this sort of whole... This whole glory of ideology really is only enjoyed by a very small group of people. Most people want to get into government and be pragmatic and change people's lives for the better. It's not about waving the reddest flag in the room. Sadly, for the people running the Labour Party at the moment, that is all they care about. Now, the me people talk about the media bias. There are left-wing newspapers on the market. People just don't buy them very much. Now, the British people have a choice of media outlets. They have a choice of things to do. And they consistently vote for centre-ground parties to win. Now, you can either say, oh, if only these stupid fools read The Guardian and The Mirror like I do every day, then they'd all be enlightened. Or you say, maybe some people think differently, and in order to get some good done, we compromise a bit. Now, I know which side I'm on, and that side won three elections. So, uh, nobody's enjoying this more than Nick, who was not expecting the first two questions not to be directed at him. <laughs> <laughs> But Matt to have to field them. So let, let's have a lady. There's a lady down here in the uh, third row. Hi. Um, this question is mostly for Mr. Clegg, because I really do want to see the Lib Dems do well in this election. You do, um, you don't? I do. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but I was wondering the fact um, that the Lib Dems have kind of ruled out a coalition. Are they, kind, are they kind of backing themselves into a corner, given that they're only polling at 11%? No, I, I just think I think it's it's a bit as I said earlier about sort of candor. I, I just think there's no point pretending that there is the, the remotest possibility of an outcome that is just not going to happen. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn will not be elected by the British people to be the prime minister of this country, and so you know why 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 mess around sort of indulging in a hypothetical outcome which not only is not going to happen. Uh, but is also actually playing into the hands of the Conservative Party. The, the, the one thing the Conservative Party would like more than anything else is for there to be endless, endless, endless discussion uh, about possible coalitions and so on. And I just, I just think, and, you know, dare I say it, um, and I think Tim Farron's on exactly the right thing, it wasn't a sort of luxury afforded to me back in 2015. And I, I, you know, I, I bear the scars of the terrible kind of, the way you get absolutely skewered in British politics, particularly by 
the kind of, you know, the kind of the, the attack dogs in the right wing press. They think that you're kind of up to sort of some plot to install X, Y, Z. Um, and in the past, it was it was maybe possible to imagine uncertain outcomes with certain coalitions, which you know, which, which you couldn't sort of rule out of out of hand. Now this is just it. Just I think the exam question before us as a country isn't about Jeremy Corbyn as the prime minister of our country. It is actually about whether you think there should be any meaningful opposition whatsoever to uh, Theresa May with a substantially large, you know, in large majority after June the 9th. And I, and, and I think, um, in that sense, for those who enjoy that kind of political history, you're actually going back to the kind of elections that you had. 2001 feels a bit like that, when everyone kind of knew who would be prime minister, but the debate really became about how do you make sure that the, the powerful are nonetheless held to account and their feet are held to the fire. So I, I just think it is a kind of just a faithful description of what everybody knows is likely to happen. And that's why I think it's right that Tim Farron's been as candid as he has about the fact that there isn't going to be a coalition of the SNP, UKIP, you know, this so-called coalition of chaos. It's not going to happen. We've got time for one more very quick question. So uh, I can see a gentleman in, the, uh, in the, the alleyway there. If you, um, I say the alleyway, it's just funny. It, it sounds amazing eyesight. Sounds, <laughs> sounds like slightly more sordid than, than it actually is. Yeah, I spend a lot of time in alleyways. Um, <laughs> Kate Hoey, she um, supports um, Plaid Sports. She's uh, got a dodgy record on LGBT rights. Huge supporter of Farage. Is she a slacker as a Labour MP? Uh, what's her redeeming feature as a, a Labour politician? It's a, it's a very uh, specific question there. <laughs> Um, Matt, would you like to have a crack at that one? No, no Matt, uh, Matt's not keen on that one. Uh, no. She makes me look left wing, so that's nice. <laughs> Katie, did you want to have a, a, any little tidbits uh, on, on... Well, I, I mean, the Lib Dems today were in Vauxhall. Mm. I mean, they're really going for that seat because they see an opportunity there in the fact that... We can fit all their cheap. MPs in a Vauxhall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no longer, no longer. Yeah, it used to be. They're not made anymore. <laughs> but even, um, I think... It used to be a Citroen Picasso, but after Richmond, <laughs> it became a Renault Espace. And, and soon it's going to be even bigger. It's going to be a great bus. <laughs> <laughs> but I, don't, I think a lot of um, people in the Labour Party... I mean, I think Paul Mason was on Newsnight last week, and he he lives in Vauxhall. He's a very pro-Corbyn, and he suggested that he might not vote for Kate Hoey. Um, so we might see kind of an alter I think people like an alternative candidate maybe but ultimately Kate Hoey votes with Labour and the majority of the time she votes for Labour policies and there's more to Labour than just Brexit there we go hopefully that's answered your question sir and um, we look forward to seeing you in an alleyway later on <laughs> uh, many thanks to everybody for coming people who are listening um, please uh, subscribe to the podcast just one click and Slacktivist should be able to manage that and it does help to keep the podcast free so that would be fantastic also spread the word please if you get a chance we do try and encourage people to do one thing in between the shows you have a month to do it um, so if anybody hasn't registered to vote the deadline is May the 22nd particularly young people um, mm. you go on government.com UK forward slash register to vote. It couldn't be any simpler. I had a look at it. It's 11 questions. First question is, which country do you live in? Now, if you can't manage that, you shouldn't be voting. So have a crack at it. You know, it does get all a bit tricky and uh, you get slightly depressed by the situation. Uh, my recommendation, maybe spend uh, you know, a little more time with the people that you're, you're close to. Uh, my idea of bliss, ladies and gentlemen, sat in my pants in my garden with a beer in the sunshine, surrounded by friends and family, 
all going, go and put your trousers on. <laughs> Something I thoroughly recommend, but if you please could give it up for our three guests tonight, Nick Clegg, Katie Balls, Matt Ford. Thank you very much, and good luck.